Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. John chapter 9 in your Bible. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen him, he was blind, said, Is, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. It was a couple months ago that I first heard the story of the English soccer coach, Glenn Hoddle. The story is more than two decades old, though. Uh, But even as of this summer, The Athletic released an article discussing the controversy that surrounded this young British coaching phenom. He's even highlighted in the new Netflix documentary that's about David Beckham. Uh, But Hoddle had quite the professional playing career, and without skipping a beat, he transitioned right into coaching. He was lauded as an instant success while functioning as the rare player manager for Chelsea's football club. By the age of just 39, which is very, very, very young, for three more months for me, he was named the manager of England's national football team. Everything Hoddle seemed to touch, it turned to gold. He even released a single, a music, uh, a a song, and it reached nearly the top 10 in the UK. It's like the guy couldn't do anything wrong until all of that came to a screeching halt, just three years into his new managerial position. It all came crashing down when Hoddle was being interviewed by the Times' Matt Dixon about the club's very disappointing season and his eccentric religious beliefs that included a strong belief in reincarnation. The reason it was so controversial was Hoddle had released one of his coaches in order to open up a staff position for him to bring in a spiritual New Age healer who would do these weird incantations and things over players. Uh, There's a great story of one of the players sitting down in front of the lady and say, just keep it short on the sides and on top, as she put her hands around him, and Hoddle didn't find any humor in it at all. So Hoddle now sitting in this interview, it said that he, he made this comment that raised so many eyebrows, explaining his religious beliefs. He says, you have to come back to learn and face some of the things you've done, good and bad. You and I have been physically given two hands and two legs and half-decent brains. Some people have not been born like that for a reason. 
The karma is working from another lifetime. I have nothing to hide about that. It's not only people with disabilities, what you sow, you have to reap. You can imagine that there was quite the public backlash to his comments that were insinuating that someone with a disability is being punished for their sins of a previous life. It got so heated and escalated so quickly that the BBC took a public opinion poll that found that 90% of the country's population believed that he should be sacked. Now, 100% of people outside of England had to Google what that even means, but it means that he'd be fired. The prime minister of England himself would speak to the issue, calling for his resignation or him to be fired. The article that was published from that interview ended with what would become seen as basically a foreboding prophetic statement that, and I quote, Glenn Hoddle's controversial belief that the disabled and others are being punished for sins in a former life is likely to ignite an inferno of an argument. And unfortunately for the young coach, he would lose his prestigious role as the team manager. It did create quite the inferno that burned him up personally, ruining his career. Now, unfortunately for me as a follower of Jesus, one of those newspapers that heaped it on pretty heavy actually referenced Toddle as a born-again Christian and applied his religious beliefs to a Christian worldview, insinuating that all Christians believe this way. But it was neither an accurate nor a fair assessment. Hoddle's thinking was really the byproduct, as one newspaper put it, of a theological casserole of beliefs that included some teachings you'd find in Christianity, some that you find in Hinduism, and then other teachings and experiences that you'd find only in the New Age movement. With nearly 25% of the world accepting Hindu or Buddhist religious teaching, Huddle's not the only person in the world that holds his belief of karma's impact on reincarnation, that your deeds dictate your destiny. That's what the teaching believes, that your deeds dictate your destiny, which is not to say that everyone who believes in reincarnation believes that disabled people are being punished, but it was widely believed by so many in the Far East, which is why India stepped up and offered Hoddle a job, saying, come and coach here because we're not offended by these things. But it is offensive, isn't it, to insinuate something like that? But it is the very question the disciples ask in our text today, isn't it? And Jesus will finally answer for us, is this a Christian worldview or not? You see, Jesus will address and correct his own disciples' errant view of human suffering, And although the disciples had no room in their Jewish thinking for reincarnation, they did have room for confusion and false teaching about specific personal sin being the cause of specific personal human suffering. That was their confusion, which led them to some odd and deeply hurtful rabbinic teaching about things classified as prenatal sin that an infant could actually sin in the womb of his mother and therefore be judged by God at their birth, that or the babies being punished for the sins of their parents in the past or the sins in their future that God knew that they would commit that would be grave, and so God would strike a helpless child with a terrible disability. And before we jump into the text, though, to see how Jesus answers this and to look at the rest of Scripture, I want to step back for a moment just long enough for you to remember how John is using the miracles of Jesus, which this is one of them, in the Gospel of John. Remember, for John, the miracles were not a, a, just a, a thing to marvel at. He believed that they were a means to an end, that each miracle created a signpost, Not just an act to gaze and wonder at, but a signpost that pointed to something outside of and beyond itself. 
that there's a greater truth connected to the miracle. So it's not just a miracle, it's more than that. He even tells you at the end of his gospel why he's utilizing these signs. He's utilizing them, chapter 20 tells you, so that you would believe that these signs are recorded so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you might have life in his name. This is why we're calling our series That You May Believe, because that's the point of this. This exercise of looking at these signs is so that you would have a growing faith in Jesus, because they're not merely recorded to impress you, they're recorded to convince you, to convince you that Jesus is in fact the promised king and rescuer who came down from heaven, and to show you, to convince you that he's worthy of your trust today. So today, kind of in no particular order, what we want to do is we want to look at the miracle itself that's recorded for us, and then we want to look at the discussion that happens around the miracle, and then we also need to spend some time looking at what the sign is pointing to, what the miracle is pointing our attention to outside of itself. So we're going to do that by asking and considering three questions today. The first is this. The first is, why do men suffer? The second is, why does God allow suffering? And then the third is, who benefits from suffering? You see, the context of our story, it's worth mentioning that after Jesus feeds the 5,000, you remember we find him walking upon the water, and then he gives a teaching in John's gospel on him being the bread of life, giving the meaning to the feeding of the 5,000. But then John's gospel follows Jesus and his disciples on their trek into Jerusalem for the week-long feast of tabernacles, which according to our calendar just finished in the last couple of days, and this, this attack on Israel perfectly aligned with the end of that celebration. In John chapter 7, verse 2, it says that that's why Jesus and the guys are in Jerusalem. This was and still is an epic celebration that brings pilgrims from all around the world each fall, commemorating the goodness and, of God and provision of God and the glory of God in the wilderness that led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But in the interest of time, although I'd love to tell you about this feast and some of the typology and imagery, we, we really can't jump in there because I don't want to get too bogged down by it. But I will just mention at the end of chapter 8, it tells you that Jesus is driven out from the Temple Mount by the religious leaders who are so incensed that they're ready to kill him. It's the Sabbath day and the place is busy with movement. The Temple Mount is from all who are coming and going to worship God at the temple. Adding to that busyness, it's the final night of Sukkot, of the Feast of Tabernacles, has just concluded, which means that you should picture there disappointed priests who are climbing up high to extinguish the massive lamps that illuminated the city during the darkness of the night while the feast celebration commemorated the glory of the Lord on the earth, the pillar of fire at night. It not only commemorated it, though, it also anticipated a future day when his glory would once again be amongst his people. Their disappointment as they're extinguishing these flames is in the realization that they're still waiting for that day to come which creates some crazy, beautiful imagery that I hope you're already picking up on. As Jesus, God in all of his glory, is walking through the scene and then calls himself in the middle of that scene, the light of the world. He's saying that I am the glory of God who's in your midst, who alone can lead you through the wilderness. And as Jesus and the disciples are leaving the Temple Mount, it says that they see a blind beggar 
who we assume has been in that same spot for several years. And it mentions it that specifically he's been blind since birth. He would have been needing alms, begging for help and support from others. And the disciples here take a moment to ask a question that we'd assume has already been on their minds many times before as they see this man and others like him who are impaired and suffering and dealing with a physical illness. It's recorded for you at the beginning of chapter 9, where as Jesus passed by, he saw the man blind from birth and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So this first thought, this first question, why do men suffer? The disciples' question of who sinned this man or his parents so that he's born blind, it has a really dangerous and unfair presupposition, doesn't it? Because it's presupposing something that all specific personal suffering is the result of specific personal sin. You know what a dangerous presupposition is. It's if I, if when Pepper walked up earlier to pray for me, which was very kind of him, if I would have looked at him and just in front of all of you said, Pepper, have you stopped beating your dog? Now, if Pepper said no, then I'd say, so you still beat your dog. But if he said yes, I'd say you're a terrible person because you used to beat your dog. There's a presupposition that's, that's loaded there, isn't it? That's inescapable. And the presupposition here is that specific personal suffering, it's got to be the result of specific personal sin. So whose sin is it? Is it his or his parents? Now, we'd all admit that questions of why are always connected to human suffering. Every time you suffer, it's what comes to mind, isn't it? Why this? Why now? Why not them? Why me? Why God? There's always questions of why. This specific why question, though, is especially odd because, as you can see, it's deceptive and really a leading question with an unfair presupposition. Their question makes it apparent that the disciples were convinced that a person's pain and suffering and adversity was the direct byproduct of their own misgivings and mistakes. The thinking's not uncommon. I remember being at my grandparents' house in Las Vegas when I was just in grade school, and I think it was my younger brother, Casey. It was either he or Kyle ran through their kitchen. They had around their kitchen table chairs that rolled because at a certain point in life, I guess it's just more appealing. Why get up when you can just scoot your way through the kitchen? And someone rolled a chair back right as he ran past and it rolled right over his foot and cut his foot pretty good. And I remember all of us starting to look for something to wipe up the blood and a bandage for his little foot because he was really young, maybe kindergarten age. And I remember my grandma just looking at him and saying, God is punishing you. Hey, it's not just the disciples, though, and my grandma that have a tendency to look at evil and suffering and to make the assumption that God's the one behind it and that maybe it's because I deserved it or they deserve it. But is the connection between human suffering and sin actually real? I mean, if this is real, if this is how it works, if the disciples were right, it's either him or his parents who sinned, Think about the pride and self-righteousness that that would create. Because when someone's life is good with health and wealth at their disposal, and they look at other people that, that don't share in their ease or comfort, oh, then we think, man, I am so much better than the one who suffers. And let me tell you the truth, I'm safe from suffering. I'm insulated from it because I know that I'm good and righteous, and I know that they're not. It makes us feel safe. 
Oh, if it's true that there is this link, think about how terribly cruel that is to the person who is suffering, to look at them every time we see someone suffer with suspicion and blame. Oh, I know this is hard for you, or this diagnosis is overwhelming, but if you would live different, if you had just honored God, it would have never happened. And yet, in some ways, if we're honest, we do, and sometimes in the back of our minds, wonder if this is how things work. But if we're honest, when we open our eyes wide to life in a broken world, what we find is that there are evil, tyrannical people in power, seemingly living at ease, while simultaneously there are wonderful, humble, gracious, loving people that all of us know that suffer terribly. You see, life's circumstance, life experience, it proves, it demonstrates that this is not real that there's not this direct link that every specific form of suffering in your life is specifically connected to your own sinful behavior. You see, in our our story here, Jesus answers recorded in verse 3 that neither this man nor his parents sin. So the question is, why do men suffer? Is it because of sin? Karma's view of recreation, or reincarnation, I should say, where your deeds define your destiny, your deeds become your destiny, answers that question, the question of why do men suffer? Is it because of sin? It answers it confidently, yes. It's because of sin in the past life. However, from a biblical worldview, it's far more complex than that because your Bible would respond and answer yes and no. Jesus, in fact, answers that same way because he's asked a similar question that's in the same line of thinking in Luke chapter 13, where you'll, you'll realize he answers really yes and no. Do men suffer because of sin? Well, yes and no. You see, in the story in Luke 13, someone comes and tells Jesus about this tragic situation where a bunch of people out in Galilee are slaughtered. And we don't know the details of why it happened or what even happened. We just know it was bad. But then they also tell him about a situation that actually happens at this very same pool, the Pool of Siloam, which just this week on Thursday, I saw a video update about the archaeological dig there. It's a great Google search for you this afternoon to look it up and see what they're continuing to excavate there. It's it's pretty amazing. But a tower that was there that fell on a crowd of unsuspecting people. And they asked Jesus about this very thing. And the question they said is, and I quote, were they worse sinners than the rest of us? the people who were mercilessly slaughtered or the people who had a building fall down on top of them. They kind of sound like Job's friends, don't they? Who, because of his suffering, they point a finger of blame at him, accusing him of being a worse sinner than they were because he's suffering loss beyond what they were enduring. Therefore, he must be a worse human being than they are. That was their thought because they wrongfully assumed that godliness guarantees prosperity and ease. And that adversity and suffering must be proof then of ungodliness. That was their errant thinking that in fact in Job's story, God responds with anger towards Job's friends for their misrepresentation of him by saying that God was punishing Job for his unrighteous behavior. But the story in Job's life is very clear that he was righteous before God and that it was not punishment from God that he faced. You see, in Luke 13, they asked Jesus, were these worse sinners than we are? And Jesus responded and said, no, they weren't, but repent lest something worse happen to you. It appears in Jesus' answer that he says no and yes. No, it's not that specific personal suffering was the result of their specific personal sin, that they are a worse sinner than you, and that's why the building fell over on top of them. 
He says no, but then he says in a sense, yes, that we are sinful fallen human beings who live in a fallen sinful world and are under sin's curse, which brings all of us into a collision course with suffering and pain which means that for them and for you, you will face what feels like senseless suffering that is the general result of mankind's rebellion and sin, which is why Jesus responded saying, no, it's not because they're worse than you, but you should repent, lest something worse happen to you also. He was answering their question saying, no, they're not worse than you, but then pointing the finger toward the crowd saying, repent and turn to God because life in a broken world by sin could bring a worse catastrophe to you at a moment that you don't expect it either. Oh, why do men suffer? Is it because of sin? The biblical worldview answers that with a yes and a no. Yes, in general, all suffering is the result of sin. Because Genesis tells you that God made the world free of those things. It was mankind's rebellion and sin that brings suffering into the world in the first place. So yes, all human suffering, all of humanity, we're getting what we deserve in a general sense. So yes, repent, because we're all in danger of the repercussion of sin collapsing on top of us. Jesus here, though, rejects that sin in particular is the direct link to particular personal suffering, while communicating that sin in general is absolutely the reason of our general suffering. So it's yes and it's no. At least in this man's story, his suffering was not the direct result of personal sin. Now here's the thing. We all know people who have suffered personally because of their sinful, selfish decisions. I know the guy who, because he, he drank too much alcohol, which is rebellion against God, and because he got behind the wheel of a car, which is rebellion against the governing authorities over him, he lost his license and suffered through that. But I know someone else who did the same thing, and he lost his arm. He was in a terrible accident. He lost more than just his license. We know people who, because we too have been people, because of our selfish and, and silly or ridiculous or rebellious sinful decisions that we do at times suffer consequences. But beyond the law just of sowing and reaping, that you will naturally reap the consequences of your decision, is it possible that God brings consequences and suffering into our lives when we rebel against him? Is it possible? Well, certainly he's God. I'm certain that it can happen. I know that he disciplines, scripture says, those that he loves. But that doesn't mean that he inflicts them with terrible suffering. You see, clearly here, it's not Jesus' default mode to assume that it was that way in each situation, that it was God responding to someone's sin and doing something. There's a beautiful verse. I'd love you to write the reference down and meditate on it this week. It's Lamentations, which it's a tough one to write and to spell. Just put lamb and then you'll remember later. 3.33, where it says that God does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Lamentations 3.33. In this specific situation here with this blind man, Jesus says that his suffering was for this reason that the works of God should be revealed in him. So why do men suffer? Why does God allow suffering? That's the second thing it leads us to. You see, some would draw the conclusion that either God isn't real or God isn't really good. Because if God was really God and he was all-powerful, and if he was really good, then he would have created a good world rather than the broken, evil, sinful one that we live in that causes so much suffering. But the Bible teaches that evil is not a thing that God created. It is rather the departure from the way that things ought to be, that were the way that things were created by God to be. 
Although God created everything, evil is not a thing. It's the privation of good. It's the perversion of it. Just as darkness is not a thing, nor is it created, darkness is the privation of light. God did, however, create mankind with a free will. And the Bible says that everything that God made was good. In fact, in Genesis 1.31, it states that everything that God made was very good. And that would include humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden. And I believe one of the good qualities that God created mankind with was free will. Having freedom to choose between two opposing options, morally speaking, we'd all agree this is a good thing. Even an atheist would agree that freedom is good. You never hear of anything in the news from anywhere in the world of people marching through the streets saying and shouting, down with freedom. We don't want choices. Put us in slavery. Take away our freedom. Empower the government to control and suppress us. Now, the opposite is true all around the world. People will march for freedom and for liberty. Free will, we recognize across all of humanity, we recognize it as a good thing. But we can wonder and ask, if God is good, why is there evil and suffering in our world? And the answer is that God is not to blame for what the world has become. You see, evil exists as the result of mankind's rebellion, our departure from the way that God created and intended things to be. God is responsible for the fact of free will. Humanity, though, is responsible for the act of free will, what we choose to do with what God has given us. In the same way that if you said, I have a family member who died last night because of a drunk driver, and you said, so I'm going after them in a lawsuit. And if we began to ask you questions about it, and you said, yeah, I'm, I'm going after the company that produced the little electric fuse that powered the ignition, I'm suing the guy on that assembly line that worked for that company, I'm suing them for losses because of the loss of my loved one. Well, we'd say, although that fuse maybe gave life to the car as the ignition turned over, that the issue is not that there was life in the car and that it had the capacity, the ability to move. The issue is that someone chose to get behind the wheel intoxicated and to drive it and turn what was a several thousand pound hunk of metal to turn it into a weapon that they drove the wrong way on the freeway until they crashed into your loved one. If you want to sue somebody, why would you go after the one who just gave someone the capacity for it? Why would you, why would you go after the one who served him the drink? Or why would you go after the auto, automotive manufacturer? Why would you go after the DMV who gave them a license? You'd go after the person who chose to use their free will in a destructive way. You see, God is responsible for the fact of free will, but we would applaud him for it. We are responsible as humanity for the act of free will, what we choose to do with it. But our question then is, well, then why doesn't God intervene to stop evil and suffering? I mean, haven't you been asked that question? Or haven't you just thought that question? Why doesn't God stop evil and suffering? Well, the question in response to that is, well, what would you like God to do? Because for God to stop evil and suffering in the world, he'd have to stop the people that caused the suffering. So let's categorize the people who caused the suffering. Sure, in our news right now, we have a terror group causing suffering. But it's not just terrorists or murderers or those who cause physical harm to other people or steal from them. It's also people who lie about others and tarnish their reputation, who damage their career path because they steal credit for some of their work. It's also people that say hurtful things or destructive words towards others because words cause deep suffering. So now we have two problems we're left with. It's that 
Haven't we all caused someone to suffer on some level? All of us then are guilty of being the cause of suffering in our world. And our other issue is that what are we then proposing that God does with all of us, with all the evil people who cause the suffering in the world? I guess what he could do is he could step in with a snap of his fingers. He could remove our free will when we're using it in a destructive manner. But the truth is that's not then any longer free will, is it? If you only get to choose it, if you choose the right choice. And what is he going to do when he has to intervene? Is he going to snuff you out of existence? I mean, that seems a bit harsh. Or is he just going to make you a robot? who you're about to yell at your wife or your kids, and as soon as your voice raises, you just and stop. You're powered down. You see, if everyone that causes suffering is evil, then God has to stop literally everyone alive on planet Earth, which means that our human existence would come to a screeching halt. Now, please know the Bible actually does say that day will come. When our human society and existence does come to a screeching halt, it's very clear that God will put an end to suffering once and for all. A day of reckoning is coming when God will right the wrongs that man has committed, where things will once again be as God created and intended them to be. It's recorded at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 21, which says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have all passed away. But for us, we then wrestle with the tension of waiting for that day. What leaves us in tension is we question, is it neglect then? Or is it mercy that God is yet to bring the day of reckoning? Because the Bible tells you why he hasn't done it. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that the Lord, he's not slack concerning his promises, as some people count him to be. No, but he is desiring that none would perish. Why does God delay from bringing that that end day of judgment, the day of reckoning and recompense that's coming? Because God desires that no one would perish and be separated from him. He doesn't want them landing on the other side of judgment. That's why he delays. It's because of mercy, not because of neglect. I know some of your stories. I know it's just been in the last couple of years that Jesus has captured and captivated your heart. I'm glad I'm glad even if my life is marked by suffering over that period of time, even if I've had hardship and adversity, I'm glad that the Lord tarried, that he's been merciful and waited because it's meant that you now are included in his family. It means that you've been rescued. Why does God allow suffering, we ask? We're in our story. Jesus, he he answers it. It's recorded for us in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that, here's the reason, the works of God should be revealed in him. In this specific situation, we're told why God allowed it. He allowed it so that the glory of God would be seen in this man's pain. You know, of all the categories of Jesus' miracles, like all the amazing things he did, like making the lame to walk, walking on water, even feeding people, of all those different categories, the category that he did most was healing blind people. You have seven examples of people who are blind, who are healed by Jesus, over five different interactions with Jesus throughout the Gospels. And in each of those situations, he heals in a different way. And I think it's because it's something that the prophets foretold very specifically that the Messiah would would arrive and do, and it was something that no one else could do, that no one else had done. In Isaiah 42, verse 7, it says that he would come and open the eyes of the blind. 
Or in Isaiah 35, verses 4 and 5, it says, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Now, in this specific healing of this blind man, though, the healing takes place in stages. I mean, why didn't he just heal him all at once, just with a word? Why send him to the pool with mud on his face? You can be certain that it's not because Jesus lacked the power to heal him instantly, because we've actually already seen him do that, haven't we, in John's gospel? We've even seen him just with the spoken word heal someone who is uh, at a great distance away from him in a distant community where Jesus just spoke the word, and in that instance, he was healed. It's not because he lacked the power to do it. Jesus, however, chooses to heal this man in a different way, where he seemingly will use dirt, saliva, time, and water to bring about illumination. Again, verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground. You need to know this is something that the Pharisees' teachings and traditions taught was breaking the Sabbath because to spit on the ground was to plow the earth as it separated the dirt. And for Jesus to make clay with the saliva did not break the Sabbath. It did, however, break their Sabbath traditions. And then Jesus anointed his eyes, the the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. You know, Jesus using saliva and rubbing dirt in a guy's eyes, it might seem both harsh and odd for us. I mean, at least we take some, like, some consolation in the fact that in Mark's gospel, he seemed to spit on a guy's face. So at least it wasn't that, we think. Or you might remember, also recorded in Mark's gospel, where Jesus will stand before a deaf and mute man, and he'll spit on his hand, and then he'll touch the man's tongue in his ears. Now, it's believed by many in antiquity that healers transferred power through their spit. And Jesus goes along with that custom, not because he had to do it in order to heal them, but he did it for the benefit of the one that he was going to heal. It was like making a statement to them, I know what I'm doing, when they'd hear the spit, even this blind man. Or maybe like with the deaf mute, when Jesus spit on his hands and touched the man's ears, which was basically a form of simple sign language because Jesus couldn't speak to him. Maybe this in in some way, or in this case, is actually a form of sound language, where Jesus spitting would have signified to the man that the healer was going to heal him. Maybe it's because even his eyes were crusted shut from years of disease and infection. And the miracle was that in an instant, Jesus caused his eyes to function, But the spit in the clay being rubbed in was like a coarse soap breaking up the crusted skin and allowing his eyes to open again to see that they'd been healed miraculously. It would leave you with the picture of Jesus gently massaging this man's disease-ridden face. Whatever the reason, though, I'm, I'm confident that this wasn't a rude moment or viewed by everyone around as just a gross interaction, that this was a gentle and intimate moment between Jesus and a man that he had compassion on. I don't know about you, but the moment actually reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Did your mind go there? Where God steps down, stoops down to his knees to fashion man out of the dust of the earth with his own hands. 
and then to breathe life into his nostrils. The pinnacle of God's creation would not be fashioned with just a word. It would be fashioned with his own hands. And for this man to be perfect and whole, God reached out of heaven with a gentle hand and got close enough to this man to feel his very breath on him as he made him whole. You know, there's some theologians, they connect the seven signs to the seven days of creation. And if you'd follow that pattern, this is the sixth sign. It would align with the sixth day of creation where God does create man. And so the image is meant to take your mind back to that day. It's showing you that Jesus is promising new creation to make everything and everyone whole again as he stoops down to the ground and makes new life out of the dust, just as he did in Eden. My friends, I would suggest that all of our why questions, though, when we suffer, have an unfair presupposition, just as the disciples one did here, too. Sure, the presupposition that that we don't deserve what we're facing is why so often we ask why. But even more so than that, it's a part of that presupposition is that God is somehow unjust and no longer good and lacking wisdom if he allows this kind of pain in my life. Even if it's something that I'd admit is, is the repercussions, it's the byproduct of my destructive behavior or my selfish attitude, even still. I mean, do you hear in your why your presupposition that God owes you an easy life? Because we're offended and ask why whenever it's not easy. We are presupposing that we all have all of the facts and that we can judge that God is unjust for failing to intervene and shelter us from our suffering. That is why we ask why. But with that level of arrogance and wisdom and judgment, we truly are making ourselves out to be God. We are elevating ourselves even above him by condemning him and the job that he's doing by allowing us to suffer. But as I've asked you before, if we have a God who's great enough for us to have expectation that he intervene and stop all suffering, if we believe him to be so great and so capable that we're even angry at him for not intervening to stop our suffering, then couldn't he also be great enough to have reasons for allowing it that we haven't considered or just couldn't understand in the moment? Oh, are you understanding this? That to see Jesus' response here responding to the question of, is our suffering linked to sin? To answer with a yes and a no to sin being the cause of our suffering, it keeps us from wallowing in self-pity and self-loathing on one side or from being suffocated by our anger over injustice on the other. Because we know that we've contributed to a sin-splintered broken world. So I'm not furious and suffocated by that anger about how unfair it is that I'm suffering. Because I know as a selfish and sinful person, I'm a part of the problem that exists in the world. I'm a part of the brokenness that I'm up against in the world. However, I also recognize that my suffering does not leave a massive finger pointing back at me from heaven, condemning me and saying that your life is painful and miserable because you're such a pathetic and miserable excuse of a human being. And if only you were better, your life would be easier, like your neighbors, like your friends seem to be. Oh, this is all your fault. Do you see that Jesus' answer keeps us from those two extremes? It keeps us from the anger of saying, I don't deserve any of this, and from the self-loathing that says that this must all be my fault. 
You see, I'm freed from living my life condemning myself and feeling like garbage in comparison to others who don't have it as bad as I do, or victimizing myself and feeling helpless and hopeless. Why do men suffer? Why does God allow suffering? But the important question in our story is who benefits from it? This is the third and final thing. Who benefits from our suffering? Please hear me on this. I'm not going to tell you that all of our suffering is caused by God, but I will remind you that God promises that all of our suffering can be used by God, that he brings beauty from ashes, that he works things together for good. You see, even in this story, Jesus says that his blindness was present, that the works of God should be revealed in him. So who was it that benefited from the works of God being revealed in him? Well, we have 2,000 years of history that's marveled at the power and compassion of Jesus. The one that we recognize as him who the prophets foretold would be God in all his glory walking among us who alone would have the power to give sight to the blind, according to the prophet Isaiah. You see, the benefit of his suffering, it's experienced by me. 2,000 years later, as I see the works of God revealed in him, it brings faith up in me. Ironically, however, when you think about the audience, not today who's still reading his story, but the audience that were, was there on that day who saw his story, which are his neighbors are introduced to you, his parents are introduced to you, and the Pharisees are introduced to you, they did not benefit from this great act and sign because they failed to recognize Jesus for who he was. In fact, at the end of the story, you realize that those three groups of people who, who ironically could see were the only ones who were blind to Jesus to his true identity and their personal need for him. By the end of the story, we find that the only one that can see Jesus is the one who had been blind. You see, the benefit was not just then to humanity and society throughout the ages who could look and see what Jesus did in the midst of this man's suffering. No, it's more than that. Did you notice in the story, the direct recipient of the glory of God and who benefited from the man's suffering was the blind man himself. Because he began to see Jesus for who he was. Because he who was blind was made to see by him. You see, for me, I, I can't speak for all of us, but it's probably true for most of us. When we suffer, we typically are looking for a reason outside of ourselves. For a point and purpose for our pain outside of ourselves. So that we feel like we can at least rest at ease and go, I guess there's a point. I guess someone benefits from us. But we'd be wise to remember that Jesus meets us in our pain. And he uses it then as a tool to free us from this world's entrapments and to fashion us into his image. Remember, please, way back in the Garden of Eden, when sin brought a curse on the earth. The reason that sin brought a curse and why God spoke up and cursed the earth with it was because if the world remained without suffering after the fall, man would remain in his unredeemed state forever. Because if we were comfortable in a world and existence that was free from pain, well, then we'd never repent of our rebellion against God, nor see what it costs to have rebelled against him. We'd never turn to God for the life that we could find in him alone, a life that's free of this kind of pain. You see, suffering was a gift and grace to humanity to keep us from forever existing in separation from God. The curse on the earth that brings human suffering was not just the byproduct of our rebellion then, it was also the mercy of God to keep us from continuing to rebel all throughout eternity separated from him. Oh, don't ignore God's lament in Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, where he said, when I fed them, they were satisfied. 
When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. You see, sometimes God permits suffering as a way to shake us out of our blind self-satisfaction, which is without question for our good. See, I think one of the questions we have to answer by way of, in a sense, application from this story is, am I willing to suffer that the works of God could be displayed? Are you willing to suffer to persevere in faith that the works of God might be displayed for you to experience and for the world to see? Or are you just going to try to hide from your suffering? Okay, land the plane with me as we make one final, just simple observation. And that's in regard to the sign, because you remember that this is not just a miracle to marvel at. This is a signpost pointing to a greater reality and truth outside of it. And the signpost is pointing to humanity's spiritual blindness. You know, one of the reasons why Jesus didn't heal him instantly, I'm convinced, is because the man then was left going alone away from Jesus to finally have his sight given as he washed so that he didn't know the identity of Jesus and he wasn't found with him. So then when others came around asking for the details, that creates this larger discussion that plays out and is even humorous because the guy's got great sarcasm, great sense of humor that you should read later, but it all plays out so that now all of these people are brought into a conversation that ends at the end of this chapter with Jesus saying these things, beginning in verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see. He's saying, Those who are blind, I came here to give them sight, and that those who see may be made blind. It's a very odd statement. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say these words and said to him, Are we blind also? They, they understand the accusation Jesus is making that, that those who have sight are deeply blinded. Oh, how dare you insinuate that of us, they said. And then Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. They're saying, we've got no problem here with our sight. And Jesus says, your sin therefore remains. You see, the story all of a sudden becomes a signpost that points to a greater reality. And that's that all of humanity suffers from this man's same ailment. We all suffer from spiritual blindness. He says, I came to bring sight to the blind and blindness to those that see. What we find is that those who have their spiritual eyes open and are rescued and saved are not necessarily the good or successful people by the world's standards, but the ones who recognize that they're not good, that they need help, that they need a savior. But until you're willing to recognize yourself as a beggar and a blind man, you're not able to have your spiritual eyes open. You won't be saved. You remain in darkness. And I'll tell you, it's much easier for a person who's suffering hardship in life to recognize their own brokenness and need for a savior than it is for someone who's successful in life and living a life of ease who are comfortable just remaining with their eyes closed. I mean, think, why is Jesus having this conversation with the Pharisees of all people? They're the ones who are the best and the brightest amongst the community, who are the ones that lived with the greatest form of moral integrity that others perceived. They're the ones who held the admiration and respect of others, and yet... They were the ones in the story who were blind and could not see. And it was because of their quote-unquote success in the world's eyes that they could not and would not see themselves as a blind and helpless beggar, needing to be touched and made whole and rescued, needing to have their eyes open. As one author said it, he says, when it comes to the gospel, the ones who are disadvantaged by the world are at an advantage. 
And those who are advantaged by the world are at a disadvantage. You see, those of us who've suffered, we know we need a rescue. We know we long for a home beyond this home. We know that we even are a contributor to the brokenness in life, and so we turn towards Jesus in need of a Savior. But not everyone is willing to do that. And what keeps someone from having their spiritual blindness removed is their pride. You see, the only blindness that remains without remedy is the blindness you neither recognize or are willing to admit. If you're blind to your need for Jesus then you will remain in your blindness. But when you come to see your need for Jesus and in humility you admit your deep need, then there is no evil so dark nor person so broken by sin that he cannot heal them and make them whole. You see, the way out of spiritual blindness is told to us in this story and it's that he worshiped Jesus. You see, the way out of spiritual blindness is to worship Jesus. All of us are worshipers. It's the thing that seats is the highest priority in our life, the thing that, that we give our allegiance to, and it's our passion. It's the thing that we value most. All of us have something that we worship. The reason we're spiritually blind is we're worshiping the wrong thing or the wrong person. It's a career. It's our finances. It's our security. But if you'll see Jesus as the most beautiful thing, if you'll begin to see the gospel as the most beautiful thing, oh, then you'll begin to worship him and you'll see your spiritual blinders lifted. And so the way to grow a heart that worships Jesus is to preach to yourself often of the beauty of his grace, of the miraculous majesty of his mercy, to sit and wonder that the God of the universe loves you and gave himself for you and now is ever living to make himself available to you. That is the gospel and that is more beautiful than any other thing or any other person in the world. Oh, the story's about a blind man, but it's about you and I and Jesus' worthiness of being worshipped. And so, Jesus, we look your direction now, not just to worship in song, but to realign our hearts, to see you, to be captivated by you as the most beautiful thing in this universe. Of your love being the most unique thing that we've ever encountered, that we know in you we are fully known and yet fully loved, that you can extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to us because you were the recipient of wrath and judgment on a cross. Jesus, today we thank you. Fill our minds and hearts with a bigger image of the beauty and glory of you and all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.